This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. You may have heard the story recently about Jessica Kane. Now, Jessica Kane is a woman who has been charged with manslaughter and charges involving drugging and allegedly stealing from men using an escort service. Well, Jessica Kane has now been released on bail, but there's been a lot of coverage of this. But it did get people wondering, is this story overshadowing violence against sex workers? Like, why is this story getting so much more attention than violence against sex workers? So we're going to talk about that right now. And a warning for listeners here, this segment involves violence against women and sex workers. So we are saying listener discretion is advised. It's rare that stories involving sex work violence make headlines. It's even rarer for those stories to spread across the country like wildfire. Well, unfortunately, we're contending with a massive misinformation campaign, mostly uh, perpetuated by those people who are fundamentally opposed to sex work. And so they try to speak on our behalf. I think they view us as damaged goods outside of society. Uh, victims of abuse, or on the other hand, uh, home-wrecking gold diggers. You know, it's one or the other. There's no recognition of the fact that the majority of us are actually working-class people. Considering the recent allegations against the escort, do you think that that perpetuates the discrimination against sex workers? Absolutely, because that person is a criminal. It's a reflection of the way that she was operating. She is not an escort. She is not a sex worker. And it it creates a chilling effect that has totally undermined trust between clients and sex workers. And we know that when you rob a client, the next sex worker who visits that client will pay the price. Do you think that if the men or women who are accused of abusing sex workers were put under a similar spotlight to the woman who was recently apprehended, do you think that wouldn't make a difference at all? I mean, they they were very vocal about the men they captured in the sting for the fake underage sex worker, and they arrested 47 men. All of those men were outed and named. But I think you have to remember that stigma plays its role. And I can tell you from my own personal experience, when I reported a man who tried to kill me, I spent eight hours at the police making my report, them documenting my injuries, all of those things. I went back to the hospital. Months later, I went to court. And he didn't even bother to get a lawyer. The judge let the man who tried to kill me examine me in court. And the man was acquitted. No. So, yeah. I went on an out call to West Vancouver, an affluent neighborhood. Went in and sat down. The man offered me a glass of wine. We sat and chatted for an hour. He then said, well, looks like, you know, maybe we should 
go into the bedroom. And I was like, well, my time is almost up. If you'd like to book me for another hour, we can do that. And he lost his mind. You know, we're paid for time. Okay. I've been there for an hour. I work for an agency. I can't just give you an extra hour. I have to pay the fee to the agency, the driver, the booking girl, all the people that are my support staff for my safety. Right. So I call the agency and I, he, they can hear him screaming in the background. I leave my phone on and I put it in my bag as I'm moving towards the door. He is blocking me from the door. He goes into the closet and pulls out what I would describe as an Iroquois war hammer, which is an ornamental piece of hardwood with a massive ball on the end of it, threatened me with that, was standing in front of me, tried to hit me with it. I was trying to reach around him and open the door. He turned his shoulder slightly towards me. So uh, I saw my opportunity. I wrapped my arm around his neck, my legs around his body, and I choked him out and pulled him to the floor. At which point my driver was trying to kick the door down. He had picked up a piece of iron fence from outside the house and had battering rammed the door down. I said, help me up, run. So we ran down the street. The police came and we went back. And then I went to the the RCMP detachment and gave my statement and all of those things. And they had seized the war hammer and all of those things. And finally, my court date came. The police didn't bother to show up. They didn't bother to bring the weapons. None of the pictures of my injuries were presented. Nothing. Somehow it was turned into that it was my fault that he had tried to kill me because I had promised him full service. Did this ever arise to the public? No. See, that's the one thing that I'm not understanding is that this woman is getting all of this coverage. However, the men who have been extremely violent and who are intending to kill other women are not put on the same forefront. And I just don't understand why. Do you have any thoughts towards that? Well, it's a throwback almost to the old anti-syphilis campaigns. You know, it's always the woman, the sex worker who was blamed for the spread of syphilis, right? In those in those campaigns, it always said things like she looks clean, but, you know, uh, worse of the three you know, with pictures of a sex worker with a skull for a face next to Hitler and the emperor of Japan. I'm not even kidding. It's always a a warning to men that escorts are dangerous, sex workers are dangerous, and to society as well. You know, even the current laws today say you must not be near a church or a school or a park, as if we don't have children who go to school, as if we don't want to go to a park for a picnic, as if sex workers don't go to church or are somehow outside of God's love. It's embedded in every aspect of these things separating out violence against us as somehow different, using different criminal code provisions. It's everywhere you look within the social fabric, within the criminal justice fabric, that bias is embedded. Until we can accept that this is what we're doing as a society, nothing is going to change. And this is very unpopular. I realize that as a social justice advocate, I should be right on board with defund the police and all of that, but they are underfunded. There are not enough officers to handle 
these cases in the way that they need to be handled, right? Men who were simply caught up in stings for purchasing sex from adult consensual sex workers really committed no crime, okay? Even though it is a criminal code offense, I don't want to see them shamed. That goes even further to degrading our safety. It makes them unwilling to screen. If we're going to increase pressure on the men who purchase sex, we're only going to further degrade that safety. So to me, I don't want to see them um, shamed for simply trying to purchase sex. Why aren't we shaming and naming the people that are violent towards us? Because sex workers don't want to have to tell anybody or show up to court the way that I did and get humiliated and not find justice. Why aren't we shaming judges who give no sentences to the men who commit violent acts against us? Why aren't we shaming the policemen who are used to investigate violence against sex workers? Why are we focusing on men who simply were trying to buy a service from a, an adult willing sex worker, a consensual sex worker? Why do we even care about that? Why aren't we shaming those people who've created this uh, environment which has allowed violence to flourish? That's who should be shamed and named. Interesting conversation. That is our producer, Bianca Rego, speaking with Susan Davis, who's with the BC Coalition for Experiential Communities, talking about the coverage of stories regarding escorts and sex workers, and really the coverage depending on the gender of who the victim is. Lots of discussion about that right now. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it... A real POS. You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. This is Mornings with Simi. Surrey residents, you are undoubtedly still absorbing the shock of hearing that your property taxes may go up by a whopping 17.5% this year alone. Now, 7% of that is a general property tax increase. 1% is a roads and traffic levy. But the rest, well, the remaining 9.5% is going to fund the policing shortfall. That's according to the city. Now, Surrey Mayor Brenda Locke was on with our Jazz Joe Hall yesterday afternoon. She is not happy about the Surrey Police Service's uh, statements on this. Here's what she had to say. It appears to me that Chief Lipinski is saying that he has no confidence in the city of Surrey management and accounting. And I, I, I can tell you that I will be seeking legal advice. I'm absolutely shocked at the, the release and the comments by the chief. I have complete confidence in our general manager of finance at the city of Surrey. He has a team of 20 professionals. These are people that are professionals with professional designations. And for him to make some of the statements that I saw in that release is uh, concerning to me. All right, so that's Surrey Mayor Brenda Locke on with Jazz Joe Hall. Clearly, there is no cooling down of the tensions between the sides in this thing. And that's mainly because that 9.5% of this tax increase is being attributed to these policing costs. That's regardless of whether they move forward with the Surrey Police Service or go back to the RCMP. It means that you, Surrey residents, will still be paying more. So let's hear more about what the Surrey Police Service has to say about that. Joining us now is Ian McDonald, the media liaison for the SPS. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. Thank you, Simi. 
What did you have to say about the mayor's comments there? She seems concerned about some of the statements the SPS has made on this. Yeah, and I think that uh, we, we can look objectively. Um, if, if we just go back four months, we were looking at uh, suggestions that uh, by retaining the RCMP, there would be a savings of up to half a billion dollars over four years. And then you fast forward to uh, six weeks after that, and the suggestion was that the savings would be $235 million over five years. You might recall that early in 2023, um, the mayor was suggesting a one-time tax hike of 55%. And then barely a month later, we're now hearing that the tax increase is going to be about 17.5%. So regardless of the chief's comments, regardless of the mayor's comments, there have been a, a slew of numbers out there, and it's no wonder that Surrey taxpayers are confused. I think there has been confusing numbers, and I think there has been the conflating of numbers, and, uh, and I think that's the reason that we've asked for an audit. I think that uh, taxpayers in Surrey deserve to know what is creating the costs, who is responsible for the costs, and where would we ultimately situate those costs depending on, on which way the transition goes. Okay, but Ian, is there even time now for an audit? That would take up precious time, and it seems like Surrey residents are already, what, into year five of this thing. Yeah, well, I mean, I think it's fair to say that we currently are in a, a bit of a holding pattern waiting for the, the province to make that very consequential decision. Um, so uh, what we're saying is uh, as quickly as possible, um, the three sides should get together and allow for an independent audit to take place. I understand the mayor um, wants to defend staff and defending staff is something that certainly that we do here as well. But at the end of the day, it is difficult to reconcile those varied numbers that have come out, like I pointed out, in the last four months. And in, in this latest rendition, the 17 plus percent increase, um, there are costs that clearly are attributable to uh, the Surrey RCMP and other costs that are being pinned on SPS. And it's all being lumped under the transition, but only if the transition is reversed. Shouldn't we also have an accounting of the savings that would be had if the transition were to continue? And so that's part of our argument. I think that there has to be full disclosure on all the numbers rather than, you know, one one month it's a 55% tax increase, the next month it's a 17.5% tax increase. Does the SPS have what you would consider more realistic numbers? So from the onset, the, the two things that we will maintain is that Municipal policing does cost uh, a nominal amount more than contract policing through the RCMP. I, I think every municipality would acknowledge that. And, uh, and so sometimes it's, it's a, more of a question of you get what you pay for. That said, our accounting and the city's accounting has been off by almost $100 million. The $235 million calculation by the city is contrasted by what is closer to a $98 million um, uh, costing from SPS. And so from the onset, once we saw those differences in numbers and understood that the city's numbers were based on 39 assumptions, we suggested that we get all of the finance people in the same room, basically lock the door and not let them out until they could agree upon the numbers. And that suggestion, that offer was turned down. And so what we end up with is a very unfortunate circumstance where it seems like partisan politics and partisan public safety is ruling the day. And, and we just don't think that that's in the best interest of, of Surrey residents. 
And how has it gotten to this point? Because I know Surrey residents are wondering, like, look, at the, all they wanted was to have more responsive policing in their community. How has it gotten to this point where two sides can't even agree on a number? Yeah, I think uh, I, I want to back up. I mean, I spent 22 years in policing and I know that uh, on the front lines, regardless of the uniform, when there are difficult situations that need to be handled, they're being handled professionally, regardless of whether it's an RCMP member or an SPS member attending. So first and foremost, I, I think uh, both sides are working well together in terms of frontline public safety. I think where this has come off the rails is the special interest groups. I think if you take a look at Twitter, and I don't advise that you do, but if you take a look at sort of the trolling and the rock throwing and the politics, that's really what has taken this off the rails. And so all I can tell you is that we have 400 staff who have either come to Surrey or have decided to join the SPS because they live and are already connected to the community and in good faith simply want to bring about a change in the form of a progressive police agency for the city. And there is only one model going forward where those staff will be retained. The, to untransition at this point means that we are going to create unemployment for 400 people, uh, many of whom are in a high demand um, um, career in terms of law enforcement, and where there will be more uncertainty going forward. And so I think part of it is you don't transition for four years just to untransition and then conceivably somewhere down the road retransition again. I think, uh, you know, the government will make the decision, but certainly you can, you can tell I'm an advocate for staying the course. Right. Is the hiring continuing? So at this point, we're not making job offers to anyone, but uh, a little bit uh, surprising is that uh, we continue to get applications and we continue to get phone calls of interest. And so um, should we receive green light, I don't anticipate we're going to have much difficulty scaling up again. So Ian, at this point, what would be the Surrey Police Service message to residents right now who obviously are feeling very confused by all this? Yeah, we share in your confusion, and that's why, again, we're, we're advocating for an audit. And I do take your point, Simi, that uh, that, that could you know, take, take a bit of time, but I think it's worth it. Because right now we're getting very partisan numbers, we're getting one-sided numbers, and now um, you know, with this 17.5% increase, we're, we're getting conflated numbers, like some numbers that surely should be attributed to the RCMP, and other numbers that would be attributed to SPS, but only if the transition were to stop. And so I think whether it's a, whether it's a diagram, a flow chart, or an audit, there needs to be more clarity on these numbers because, uh, as I've illustrated, just over the last four months, the numbers have changed several times. All right. Well, Ian, thank you so much for your time this morning. Much appreciated. Have a great day. That's Ian McDonald, media liaison for the Surrey Police Service. All right, Surrey residents out there, anybody who wants to weigh in on this, do you think everything should just be full stop time for a complete independent audit? And let's get to the bottom of this before things go any further, because clearly, even though we're talking about adults here, all the different sides of this thing can't even agree on a simple set of numbers here. So is it time to say, let's do this independent audit? Or do you think, no, we've had so much time to talk about this already. Just get it done. Make a decision. What are your thoughts on that? Simi at cknw.com. You can call or text our buzz line 604-331-2899. This is Mornings with Simi. 
Chinese interference in Canadian elections, Chinese interference in Canadian democracy. Now, these issues have really come to the forefront in recent years, thanks to the great work of people like Sam Cooper at Global News, but also the Globe and Mail newspaper. The last couple of days, the paper has published stories alleging widespread efforts by China to interfere in Canadian affairs. Everything from disinformation campaigns to actively supporting candidates who are more favorable to China. So to talk about what we know at this point and what the Canadian government is doing, if anything at all, is Akshay Singh, an international affairs and security scholar and research associate at the Centre for International Policy Studies at the University of Ottawa. Akshay, thank you for being back with us. Thanks for having me again, Simi. What do you think of these recent kind of revelations that the Global Mail has been talking about? Well, I think it adds a bit more color to something that we've been seeing happening in other countries, but more importantly, that we've also had happen in Canada in 2019, allegedly, according to the reports that you mentioned by Sam Cooper. Uh, I think it's concerning that we're talking about this level of foreign interference, but I'm not necessarily surprised by it, given some of our partners have alleged similar types of activities in their countries as well. So what do we know? Like, What kind of interference are we talking about here? So the latest reports from the Global Mail are talking about interference uh, in our electoral system. This is potential uh, foreign interference by people working on behalf of the Chinese government, diplomats, their proxies, and by proxies, I mean people who are working on behalf of the Chinese government in an undeclared capacity to try and influence the outcome of uh, the election in 2021 uh, through a variety of means. Uh, And also more recently, the Global Mail reported that, you know, it's not just about elections. It's about people in the business community, for example, and other sectors like academia that could be targeted from a foreign interference perspective through a variety of means like cyber intrusion, bribery, or even honeypots. Uh, That's sexual entrapment in some cases. So should the government not be concerned about this? I do think the government is concerned about it. I mean, uh, there are a couple of things that have happened. Uh, The site task force that has been mentioned by uh, by the Global Mail Um, has been stood up to monitor interference in elections. And we do have a couple of international um, intelligence partnerships with our Five Eyes partners, which through the Global Mail reporting, we've seen, we've been sharing intelligence with them on foreign interference. So I'm assuming that we're talking to our partners about what we're seeing and trying to come up with ways to counter it. And CSIS has mentioned that it is briefing members of parliament as well as other officials on the threat of foreign interference. But I think the challenge here is um, this is such a, large-scale issue. It's so broad that it's difficult to tackle without um, a, a bit more focus and resources on the on the potential problem happening here. And it, it requires quite a consistent effort by multiple stakeholders in government to address the problem. And I think that's what we're going to see happen in the next few months, hopefully. Hopefully, right? That's the key word there. Do other countries deal with this differently? Like, how, how is it approached elsewhere? Yeah, I mean, um, I think the, probably the country that's been the most open and aggressive about it has been the United States. Uh, they're in a different uh, regulatory environment. They have a foreign agent registry. Uh, the FBI has been very aggressive in its prosecution of uh, alleged foreign interference. And they have laid charges on individuals. And they've also, you know, PNG, this is, uh, you know, made persona non grata diplomats who've acted in activities that are linked to threat activities. Um, so I think, um, you know, the, the main challenge is devising something similar in Canada that doesn't uh, perhaps uh, go overboard. And I think that is a concern that people have that, you know, if we do develop our own foreign registry, is it going to be too aggressive? I think Australia did a great job in looking at what the U.S. is doing and tailor made something that's uh, unique to their system, which is not that different from our system. But it took them about two years to do it, uh, if not a little bit longer and thinking about how they want to do it. Right. So I do think work is being done here. The Minister for Public Safety has mentioned he's thinking about foreign agent registry. 
But I think in the meantime, uh, while we're reading these stories, we have to keep in mind that foreign interference is still happening in Canada and learning about these things will help us ultimately kind of see what's happening and hopefully counter it. Yeah. I mean, hasn't haven't they been thinking about that foreign registry since 2021? It's already been almost two years. Well, there was uh, an initiative put ahead by a former conservative candidate uh, from the greater Vancouver area, Kenny Chu, um, but it did not get through parliament. I think the the official note that I've seen latest in the media is a couple of months ago, the minister mentioning that he's looking at bringing something to bear, but I'm not quite sure what kind of policy work is going on in the background. I think with government, unfortunately, sometimes things tend to be a little bit uh, slow, but probably for good measure, given that they do have to consult with a range of stakeholders to make sure they're not uh, devising something that's not good for our system. But I do think, based on what I've seen from CSIS as well as CSE, that there are steps being taken to try and educate people who are being targeted by foreign interference, uh, including by engaging with the diaspora as well as briefing politicians. So that's encouraging to me, and that's more than that's been done in probably the last three or four years. And I'm sure mm-hmm. that the next federal election will have many eyes on it. I would hope so. Uh, thank you so much for your time this morning. Thanks for having me, Simi. Take care. That's actually Singh, who's a research associate at the Centre for International Policy Studies at the University of Ottawa. And in fact, the Globe and Mail is reporting this morning as well that a, a Commons committee involving Conservative, New Democrat and Bloc Québécois MPs are demanding an investigation into these latest allegations because they want to definitely put it on the agenda of the government. So we'll keep you posted on that. If you want to weigh in, Simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. Now, February is Heart Month, so we have been taking that opportunity to showcase stories of survival, of resilience, and of education and awareness. So even though we have made huge advances in treating heart disease, there are still far too many cases. And cases where maybe people didn't even understand why this was happening. And sometimes it even happens right from birth. The Parker family has two little boys named Cohen, who is five, and Nash, who is two. Both of those little boys have battled heart disease at their age. Can you think about that? Like most people far older than them wouldn't even know or have to deal with a problem like this. Their mom, Angela Parker, and their dad, Emery Parker, join us now to talk more about that. Good morning to both of you. Good morning. Good morning. First of all, let me ask you, how are Cohen and Nash doing? They're doing fantastic. Um, Cohen's a thriving, rough and tumble little five-year-old boy. He started kindergarten this year, and he's doing extremely well. And Nash, he's super energetic. He's rambunctious. He's Nash has a very uh, outgoing personality, and he just tends to draw everybody in. Yeah, so they're doing great. Aw, that's so nice to hear. Now, let me ask you as well, uh, maybe you could tell the audience, what kind of heart problems did they have? Like, when did you realize they both had issues? Um, at birth. Yeah. So we didn't know before. Um, we had all of our regular ultrasounds and prenatal testing. And so for Cohen, it, um, we had a planned home birth. And the following day, our midwife noticed that he was struggling while he was nursing. So we, we were sent up to our local community hospital. And we stayed a couple nights. And it wasn't until an echocardiogram was done, which is an ultrasound of his heart, that we um, figured out that something was wrong with our baby's heart. We were actually emergency airlifted to BC Children's Hospital and further testing confirmed that he had three congenital heart defects. Oh, my goodness. And and, and the same thing happened with Nash. And so, yeah. So for Nash, we we kind of knew something was up. They didn't think it was anything to do with his heart. Um, I had a condition called polyhydramnio, so extra accumulation of amniotic fluid during pregnancy. So we were actually in Vancouver five weeks prior to his birth. 
um, just being followed by maternal fetal medicine, and we needed to be closer to the big hospitals. Um, So once he was born, we discovered that he did have a condition called bacterial association, which is a disorder that affects many body systems, and his heart is one of those. Oh, unreal, both of your boys. Emery, how many surgeries have your boys have? Oh, my goodness. Uh, <laughs> they have had uh, uh, two heart surgeries and multiple surgeries in the hospital as well for Nash. Oh. And I, uh, how, how much yeah. did you know, Emery, about you know congenital heart problems before all of this happened? I had, I had no idea that this was anything, you know, like just as a huge huge shocker to us as you know like you're the biggest the biggest moment of your life the next thing you know oh my goodness something that's the worst that's the worst thing that someone to hear as a parent there's something wrong with your baby's heart like that is you know that just makes you makes your heart drop right so oh yeah absolutely uh, how have how have you two dealt with all that like i know you've had a great support at bc children's hospital haven't you we have yeah we've had we've had like amazing and incredible support you know from a through our family, friends, coworkers, and community, like uh, the relationship of trust that we have built through with the Heart Center and our care teams have been incredible. I mean, they've helped us come, they've helped comfort us and guide us every step of the way. I mean, from being included in the morning rounds, the staff telling us to go out, to go outside and get some fresh air recharged. You know, they, they not only took care of our little ones, but they also went above and beyond to make sure that we, the parents, were taken care of as well. You know, it, yeah. it, was, it was. Yeah, a- Angela, let me ask you then. So. How much have you learned about heart disease in children during all this? Oh, we've learned a ton. We've had to. Um, yeah, it's way more common than what people think or know. Um, every One in every 100 children born in BC has a heart defect. And two of our three children have congenital heart defects. Um, yeah, it's way more common. And yeah. Emery, that, that's, that's a shocking statistic, isn't it? Yes, that's shocking, and it's like you know, like just blows your mind to think like, oh my goodness, like one in every hundred. That's just like no way it could be that, right? Like, yeah. Now I know that the work at the BC Children's Hospital has been really critical to this. So, what what would both of you like people to know? I know this is Heart Month, and so people need to pay attention to these kinds of issues. But what do you want people to know about your story? Um, just that. Our goal now is just to help support and raise, raise awareness that um, for uh, congenital heart defects and also that more is needed to help the children in our province. BC Children's Hospital, it is our only hospital in BC. And yeah, just more awareness and understanding in the long run will lead to more funding for research and more research may mean more time with our boys and for children everywhere. So that's really important to us. And so, Emery, what do you hope for your boys moving forward? Are they are they free and clear now? Or are they going to continue to need checkups? Uh, their the, the, uh, their last checkups have um, uh, they're they're free and clear for now. I mean, uh, now there's no restrictions on what they get they can or cannot do. They're on they're off heart medications. They're just they're just um, excelling now. They're just actually running around like little boys should be, right? Like it's it just makes your heart grow. Like wow, okay, these guys look look what they went through, and now. They're free and clear for a while, you know. Like it's just, yeah, it's 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 just astonishing, right? Oh, I am so glad to hear that. Well, listen, best of luck to both of you, and you give those two boys a hug from us. <laughs> Thank we'll you so Thank much. You. you will. All right, best of luck. That is Angela and Emery Parker. They have two boys, Cohen who is five, Nash who is two. Both of them 
were born with congenital heart defects requiring serious heart surgeries and multiple surgeries afterwards to make sure they were okay. Now, this means that they were born with this. And so that's why they have needed that support from BC Children's Hospital. There's so many different kinds of congenital heart defects that kids are dealing with these days. We're getting better at detecting them, right? Some people have them their whole lives and find out later in life when it causes, you know, a problem. Uh, But we're getting better at detecting them. The younger children are too. So uh, for more support for that, you can go to the BC Children's Hospital Foundation. They do a lot of work in this area supporting parents like Angela and Emery Parker. This is Mornings with Simi. Situation remains so dire in regions of Turkey and Syria where that massive earthquake, a 7.8 magnitude, hit a couple of weeks ago. The death toll right now is about 44,000, continues to climb too. Tens of thousands more people have been left homeless. And even as that has been going on, the earthquakes are still happening. Yesterday on the Jazz Joe Show, they were talking to somebody in the area about what has been happening. And as they were having their conversation, the 6.4 magnitude earthquake struck. Have a listen. But some of them, when the government come and they um, see the building that it's need to evac. Oh, my God, it's happened. Is it happening right now? Yeah. yeah Okay, well, I want you to be safe. Do you want to? Do you want to? No, uh, it's all good. I'm talking through the like. I'm on my phone. On your phone. phone. Okay. Fine. So we'll stay with us then. Are you in the middle of Stop. it right now? Stop. Yeah, just it, it's happening for a few seconds, but because yeah, we you can hear the the things are moving and shaking. How incredibly nerve wracking is that? And so we thought these were two very large quakes a couple of weeks apart: seven point eight, six point four, and these aftershocks are all in the range of five. Is this how it works when there is a major earthquake? Joining us now is Dr. John Cassidy, a senior research scientist with Natural Resources Canada. Dr. Cassidy, thank you for being here. Oh, thank you. Good morning. Can you give us an idea of when we do have a large earthquake, for instance, like the 7.8 magnitude from a couple of weeks ago, is it quite normal then to have these very large aftershocks? Uh, it really is. Um, when, when For these really large earthquakes in the magnitude 7.8, 8 range or larger, um, there are three things that happen. One is that the area that's impacted, the fault that has broken during these huge earthquakes is hundreds of kilometers long. So you have a very large area that's been impacted and that entire area uh, is susceptible to aftershocks. And the larger um, an earthquake is, the larger the aftershocks are in general. And the longer the aftershocks will continue for. So for small earthquakes, little magnitude fours or fives, you might see aftershocks over a day or so. But when you're looking at a magnitude 7.8 earthquake, uh, aftershocks can continue for many months, sadly, because they really are uh, very, very frightening and they can cause additional damage as well. What do we classify as a large earthquake then? Uh, well, typically larger than about a magnitude seven, but it's you know it's really a combination of magnitude and distance. So a, a six a six point three aftershock like the one yesterday, um, if you're very close to that earthquake, uh, there's strong ground shaking. That's a major earthquake. Christchurch, New Zealand, was a good example. A six point three earthquake directly beneath a city uh, is a very damaging earthquake and a very frightening earthquake. Um, but as you get up into the magnitude 7 range, then the rupture zone, the, the region of very strong shaking becomes much larger. 
and the potential for much more damage um, in large part because of the area that's covered. So we say, we call them aftershocks, right? But how do we differentiate between them in terms of how they feel versus an earthquake? Yeah, that's a a good question. uh, An aftershock, uh, by definition, is always smaller than the main earthquake. So anything in that region um, of the fault that broke during the 7.8 earthquake, anything, any earthquakes smaller in that region are aftershocks. So if, um, so if, if, um, so the, the shaking depends again on the distance and magnitude. So an aftershock could be smaller, but if it's closer to you, uh, the shaking could be stronger than from the main earthquake. And, uh, you know, f- for those who have been through a very large earthquake, which is very frightening, then to experience aftershocks that continue for days and weeks and months is, is, is really a terrifying ordeal. Even, okay. though the, even if the shaking is, is weaker, it, it just is a very frightening experience. And it would feel the same to us, right? If you're experiencing an aftershock, to you it's an earthquake. Absolutely. Absolutely. I was in Chile after the 8.8 earthquake, and, and uh, we were feeling aftershocks continuously for the first, the first weeks, and, and it was just so frightening. And, and um, I remember coming home and, and being in a grocery store, and a, a can fell off of a shelf, and it, <laughs> it just triggered all of those memories again. It's just very, very frightening experience. And so what is the geologic process that is happening there? Is that after a huge rupture, like the initial earthquake then, is that the earth kind of settling back down? Is that the plate settling back down? Yeah, that's exactly it. It's um, When you have an earthquake, you, you have movement along a fault zone. So you have um, plates that have been uh, locked in place, locked together, stuck, uh, storing energy for decades or sometimes for hundreds of years, as, as was the case here. Um, and when they move, and it's a big movement, it's in some cases three or four or five meters uh, of slip, um, some areas have released energy, but some areas where, where the fault didn't slip, um, the energy is, there's added energy, there's added stress. And so those regions with increased stress are more likely to experience aftershocks uh, in the coming days and weeks and months. So really it's, it's sort of um, uh, an adjustment to this new situation when the plates move and everything is trying to ad- adapt to this new, this new reality. And so aftershocks tend to occur in certain areas. We can actually estimate where the stress has increased and where the stress has decreased and what we're seeing in Turkey is, is a very good fit to that, um, those calculations that where most of the large aftershocks are is where the stress increased from the movement associated with those big earthquakes um, a week or so ago. Right. So is that kind of work that you're doing then, does that hopefully work towards being able to better predict where this will happen? Yeah, to better understand, um, try, we, we can't predict earthquakes or even aftershocks, but we can say these regions are more susceptible, more likely to experience aftershocks. Um, back in 2012, we had a 7.8 earthquake off of Haida Gwaii. It was off beneath the Pacific Ocean. Um, and that's exactly what we found in Haida Gwaii, that there were thousands of aftershocks. They continued for many months after that earthquake. And the largest aftershocks all fell within the regions where we had estimated increased stress from the main earthquake. So 
it, it does give us a good idea of which areas are more susceptible um, to, to aftershocks or to future earthquakes. So what do you look for then, Dr. Casti, when you hear about this devastating situation in Turkey and Syria? Do you immediately have questions that you feel need to be answered? Uh, it's really important to learn from all of these all of these events, and um, so that we can be better prepared. We know that you know there'll be more earthquakes like that around the world, and so it really is important to understand what controls ground shaking. Um, how can we identify faults that are more likely to break, and uh, and what's the history? So you know even this this event, which is a relatively rare event in that part of Turkey. Um, looking at the impacts from it can help us look at back in time and see what's happened over thousands of years so that you have a better estimate of of how often do these earthquakes occur and where and how especially how did the ground shake which is the information that engineers need when they're designing structures and bridges and and buildings and hopefully stronger right to withstand something Uh, like that absolutely so building codes around the world uh, are increasing and improving um, over time. So as we learn from these earthquakes, whether they're in Chile or Japan or Turkey or, um, or here in Canada, our building codes are constantly being improved as we learn from these earthquakes and we apply different data sets that we have now and, and better data. Well, Dr. Cassidy, thank you for explaining it to us. Oh, you're most welcome. Thank you. So interesting. That's Dr. John Cassidy, Senior Research Scientist with Natural Resources Canada, talking about the science behind earthquakes and aftershocks. Earthquakes, yes, they're the same, uh, but there's a reason for why they happen. This is Mornings with Simi. Hey, savers. Today is $1.49 day at Save On Foods. Yep, you heard that right. It's a blast from the past. We've got throwback prices on a handful of your favorites for just $1.49. Today only, so don't miss out. That sounds a little familiar, doesn't it? Dollar forty-nine day Tuesday. That is actually today. Yes, they are bringing it back. And so we, of course, have been giving away $149 gift cards to Save on Foods this week. We want to talk about what's going on here. Why is this coming back? Well, joining us now is Daryl Jones, president of Save on Foods. Good morning, Daryl. Good morning, Simi. It's great to be with you. Well, nice to have you here. I bet you it's a busy day in your stores, right? Like it's dollar forty-nine day. It's $1.49 day, and our customers seem to be really happy as they were. some of them were lined up out front of the store before the stores even opened today That's to make crazy. sure they got the deals. That is crazy. Okay, tell me about the inspiration for this. Like, why bring this back? Well, you know, uh, Simi, as you know, it's been really tough for, uh, for our customers. Uh, prices have been, you know, uh, rising. And, you know, we, we, we thought it would be right for us to at least at least once a month to be able to give back and, and go back to some retro pricing. So we, so we thought, wow, $1.49 day, everybody remembers those days. So we've decided to bring it back, put some prices that are really, really throwback and, uh, and, and help our customers out for at least one day a week. Okay, so how often will they say this? Will it be every Tuesday? Now, once a month, once a month, we'll have $1.49 day, and we're going to have another surprise sale once a month. But there'll be more about that coming up. Aw, come on. Now you're teasing us. Okay, so we have to wait for that one. Um, what kind of pressures is Savon seeing here too, Daryl? Because I can imagine it must be difficult to be in the grocery business these days. It is very difficult. Uh, costs are rising. I think the our typical 
cost increase was over 10% last year uh, from our suppliers. And our fuel costs were 180% higher than they were the year before. So a lot of a lot of things coming at the, the food business. But, um, you know, we, we've been here for 108 years and we'll be here for another 108 years to take care of our customers in Western Canada. How do you decide kind of what items are going to be on for $1.49? I and mean, that's a huge deal. So how do you decide what's going to go on sale for that price? Well, we took a look at we take a look at what our what our customers uh, really purchase on a regular basis. Things that are great for them for basics. For example, we've got ground beef for a dollar forty nine. I can't remember the last time ground beef was a dollar forty nine. Um, raspberries for a dollar forty nine. So so really really try to take a look at what our customers might want and might need, and try and get out there with a throwback prices that. Um, you know, maybe get everybody out of bed a little earlier to make sure they got there before supplies run out. Yeah. Okay. Hopefully. So this will be once a month on a Tuesday uh, and you'll let people know ahead of time kind of what's going to be on sale. What we'll do is what we'll say $1.49 days and the day before we'll put the prices out there. So everybody get a chance to know what we are easily a day or two before. All right. Well, listen, this is great. Daryl, thank you so much. Hey, thanks for those gift cards this week. People love them. But, well, it was great. Semi, thank you so much. I really enjoyed doing the uh, TV commercial with you. Oh, yeah. And I'm looking forward to seeing it on TV. And we, we really, um, really appreciate all your help. And to all our customers out there, have fun. Enjoy $1.49 Day Tuesdays once a month. <laughs> you did a good job with that, Daryl. Thank you. Okay. Thank you, <laughs> Have Cindy. a good day. That's Daryl Jones, president of Save On Foods. Yeah, you know the old jingle, $1.49 Day Tuesday. That is today. They're bringing it back once a month. Hence our gift giveaway this week, which is $149 gift cards to Save On Foods. There are some great deals there. We are going to continue. $1.49 Day might only be once a month, but we're going to continue giving away those gift cards all this week and we're doing it by playing Simi's grocery game. So I pluck an item from the Save on Foods flyer. We get three contestants on the line and then I very quickly, because I don't want you Googling or anything like that, ask you what you think that price is and the person who comes closest without going over, they are going to win the $149 gift card. So we have another one to give away tomorrow. Make sure you keep listening all this week for your chance to win. This is Mornings with Simi. 500 businesses. That's how many feel that their short and long-term viability are under threat. And that's because of all the additional you know, challenges they've got right now. Costs associated with repeat vandalism, property crime. So 500 businesses feel that their short and long-term future are under threat, essentially. And we are talking businesses in Metro Vancouver, Fraser Valley, Kelowna, Kamloops, Prince George, Victoria. Now, this is all part of a survey that was done by the Business Improvement Areas of British Columbia, and the president, Terry Smith, joins us now. Good morning, Terry. Good morning, Sammy. Thanks for having me. Well, that's a pretty high number. That's lots of businesses, it seems like, that feel like their future is in doubt. Yeah, it was a little bit concerning when we we received the results, but, you know, it not a scientific survey, but it was something that confirmed what we were hearing from our own individual BIAs and our business members across the province. And so we wanted to get a good sense of what are the impacts of the property crime and the vandalism and the public safety issues that are affecting our neighborhoods? What does it really mean to our businesses? Did it surprise you as well that this is not just like a big city issue? This was happening, it sounds like, in communities right across the province. Because of the representation of our our board at BIEBC, a number of those communities are represented. And so that was something that we had been hearing. So it wasn't 
shocking to us. It was just confirming what we were hearing. I think the shocking part was the percentage of businesses that felt that they could not sustain themselves for longer than a couple of years. And when you looked at less than one year, one year and two years, it, it was in the 40% range. So that, that to us was what really, you know, hit the, the alarm bells. Yeah, no kidding. So what is it that you would like to see happen here? Well, we've been making quite a few requests that, you know, we see all three levels of government come together and, and work together collaboratively to address the complex issues that are facing our communities. Um, and, you know, there are steps being taken in terms of the, the creation of the uh, Safer Communities Action Plan. And there's been a couple of funds that have been created recently um, by the government, but nothing is really addressing the immediate needs. A lot of the things are much more long-term or midterm in nature. So what can we do to, to really help our businesses get through this tough time? And, and so we're looking at um, a separate funding envelope uh, to address the issues of anti-vandalism. So, well, we want to help support anti-vandalism, not vandalism. Right. Um, and so what can we do to, to help with that? So enhancing business security or mitigating the impacts of crime. And that's sort of what this fund would address. And that's what we're, okay. we're so, going after right now. So you're, what you're hoping the provincial government will do, if they're listening then, is to create a fund so that businesses can say, I, you know, I need help. I've had my business, you know, vandalized so many times. I need help with this. Exactly. And BIAs have taken that on individually in certain communities. Some uh, municipal governments have supported this. So there is precedence there. We just need the provincial government to step up and help us make a broader impact uh, across the province. Right. This seems like it is everywhere. So property crime and vandalism are that much of an issue in all of these communities? It's certainly been something that we've been hearing, and it was addressed um, in the uh, the survey that we did as well. So yes, it is, you know, in certain areas more of an issue than others, but it is still uh, widespread. And it's it's the, the costs of that that are, you know, there's a lot of businesses that are repeat targets of vandalism and property crime. And, you know, you can only go to insurance for so long until they won't accept your claim anymore. So a lot of these are becoming out-of-pocket expenses for our businesses. All right. Well, Terry, thank you so much for telling us about it this morning. You're welcome. Thank you for having me again, Simi. That's Terry Smith, president of the Business Improvement Areas of British Columbia. So they surveyed hundreds of businesses right across the province. And what they found is that whether it was Metro Vancouver, the Fraser Valley, Kelowna, Kamloops, Prince George or Victoria, they heard the sim- something very, very similar, that the short and long-term viability of businesses is being threatened because of repeat vandalism and property crime. 9% of the businesses that they surveyed said that they're going to survive less than one year because of these issues. 17% said they'll a uh, year and a bit that their viability is being threatened. 22% said uh, within two years, their viability is definitely being threatened because of these issues. And they want the provincial government to step in and help out.